Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1940, and we're about to have a conversation so intense, it's going to pop the pennies off a dead Irishman. The movie, Philadelphia Story. Everybody, welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson, and this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 films of all time list and look and see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Um, last week we talked about the Maltese Falcon. We'll be talking a little bit more about that in the next few seconds. But this week we are talking about. A classic romantic comedy, The Philadelphia Story, and we have a very special guest today, the writer of Set It Up, Katie Silberman. So stay tuned for that. Before we get uh, back into the Maltese Falcon, I want to remind people that we have amazing merch available at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled, and we actually saw two people wearing... Um, a shirt that we thought wasn't getting any love online. No one had bought this shirt. It was I Love Lepers, Charlton Heston from Ben-Hur. Just, it's a great, like, kind of, what do you call it, style? It's like, not art deco, but it's like pop art or something Yeah, it's very pop art, comic booky, Lichtenstein without the Dotsie. And it was the cutest couple. They came to our live show at the Alamo Draft House wearing the matching shirts, but in their own colors because they let you pick your own color that you want your shirt to be on, which I love that about where our shirts come from. It's so, so good. So head on over to tpublic.com slash store slash unspooled and if you want to follow along with us you can always head to podswag.com and get our poster designed by scott c he did an amazing job follow along i've been checking off my poster and it's a pretty great fun little hobby now let's talk about people's reaction to the maltese falcon well people were very intelligent in deciphering and scrambling with the maltese falcon and i actually want to point out matthew fountain who in the unspooled podcast group said did anybody else notice that the title the maltese falcon could be a loose anagram for Tease a fallen con man. Ooh, wow. Oh. I like that. I know. I'm always here for my anagram brothers and sisters. Yes. Do you think that that actually is true or is that just kind of fake news? When I stared at it in my head, it seemed to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> 
But actually, while we're talking about me deciphering things, I have to do a mea culpa of my own because I did not realize that there were actually a few Simpsons Maltese Falcon references that people did pick up on that I completely missed. The number one thing is yeah. the Simpsons likes to do the Sydney Green Street angle where they're like, oh, it's a giant man and we're in his crotch. Like here, this is from the episode Homie the Clown. And as you hear fat Tony talk, picture them shooting this moment of the Simpsons exactly like the Maltese Falcon. I am afraid the time has come for you to pay us. Look, I'm cleaned out. Just take the clown college. We have already taken it. Kids have a lot of money these days. So after you finish your performance, you might consider robbing them. You know, Amy, that's not the only crotch shot on The Simpsons. Uh, Here's another one that was sent to us. And again, it's an audio medium, but we're showing you crotch shots. But just imagine this character. Just picture crotch shots. Just picture Simpsons crotch shots. That's where this podcast on the AFI Top 100 (laughs) is gone. Crotch shots, baby, in cartoon. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I can't divulge information about that customer's secret illegal account. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a customer. Oh, crap. I shouldn't have said it was a secret. Oh, crap. I certainly shouldn't have said it was illegal. Ah, it's too hot today. Great crotch work and funny scene. Um, But it wasn't just The Simpsons, Amy. There's also a Ren and Stimpy Maltese Falcon clip. This is true. And once Sharon Horat, who is so smart every week with the things that she notices and brings to our attention, she was like, hey, you guys, remember that Ren and Stimpy, his catchphrase is Peter Laura's catchphrase. And I was like, oh, my God, how could I have not noticed? I ate the five bucks. You Stupid idiot! How did I not realize that I this know. whole time that Ren is Peter Lorre? How did I miss that? We are breathing in the air of the Maltese Falcon. We don't even know it. We don't question it at all. Um, and finally, Lars Anderson writes, I love this movie. The only thing I didn't really care for is the opening scroll, which is repeated by Green Street later on anyway. What was it? Like a studio guy was like, hmm, the audiences aren't, aren't going to sit for an hour not knowing what the Falcon is. We got to explain it up front. You know, it's interesting. Like Green Street, I think, is even at the front and center of the trailer for this film. Here, take a listen to this. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese Falcon. 600 years, the Falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed. For the Maltese Falcon. So that's how the trailer starts. So funny. And he clearly shot that just for the trailer. But they really are building up this Falcon. You got to get that Falcon. I mean, that's why Adam Savage probably is so obsessed with it as well. People want to know more about it. Get that Falcon, baby. And actually, while I'm thinking about this for the last time as we say goodbye to the Maltese Falcon, you know, thinking about Sydney Green Street, thinking about all this iconic imagery that we're seeing in The Simpsons and hearing in this trailer and everything about it. I mean, do you think that In the modern era, we're so obsessed with fitness and with all of our male stars being, like, swole that we're missing out on people with just this cool Green Street presence. We don't really make that many Green Streets. We're more like, be a buff dude. No, no, I disagree. I mean, and not not to call out people, but look at uh, people like John Goodman. I mean, like, that would be a John Goodman-esque character. I think, look, our leads are 
are going to for action are going to be like that. But I think our character actors, our great character actors are often of many different body types. And, and I think we do it's, have Goodman. Yeah. I mean, and there's so I mean, there's so many not to just call attention to Goodman, but they're like if you look around in in film, I think that. That's the best part about being a character actor is they don't look like the swole leads, you know? And I thought, You're right. I'm yeah. just so sick of swole. And it was also on my mind because Humphrey Bogart himself, he's a skinny dude. He's real scrawny, really. He's a scrawny, scrawny dude. And I just miss having normal, scrawny dudes on screen. I know. I'm it's sick nice. of eight packs. Who would have ever thought? I'm sick of eight packs. <laughs> no one likes an eight pack. Uh, I keep on telling myself that every single day. Um, now, Amy, uh, we're going to leave the Maltese Falcon behind, unlike most people who become obsessed with it. And we're going to move to a slightly lighter territory. We're talking about one of AFI's top five romantic comedies of all time. It's on this list a little bit lower than the top five. Um, and it's a Philadelphia story, which is a movie that you are self-professed to love we thought if we were going to remake this movie today, who would be a good, you know, trio of stars for it? So let's take a listen to what you called in last week and told us you thought the best new casting would be for this film. So I would cast Dev Patel as Mike, Zendaya as Tracy, and Joe Keery as C.K. Dexter Haven. I think I'd cast the Philadelphia story with Adam Sandler, Steve Buscemi, and Jennifer Aniston. Give me uh, Helen Hunt, Kevin Pollock, and Henry Rollins. That is a version of the Philadelphia story that everyone needs. In a blatant attempt to pander to you, Amy, uh, for my sexy love triangle, I'm going to suggest Michael Shannon, Lakeith Stanfield, and, of course, the most beautiful woman alive, Dana Delaney. Of course, the most perfect love triangle for the Philadelphia story Ildris Elba, Jason Statham, Chris Rock Johnson. Yeah! My answer would be Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, and Emma Stone. I think that'd be pretty good. Can I just say that a movie poster with Dana Delaney being kissed by on one cheek by Michael Shannon and Lakeith Stanfield on the other cheek... That would be beautiful. That would just be art. <laughs> well, okay. I absolutely love that. And also, a Helen Hunt, Kevin Pollack, and Henry Rollins poster. That's, also art. Like, that's the one also I wanted art. to talk about. That one is aggressive. I don't know what <laughs> that is. That is just insane. I have to say, though, Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, and Emma Stone, I'm kind of there for that movie. Like, I know it's playing on things that we've already seen, but look, so is Philadelphia Story. Spoiler alert. Um, it's true. And also the Adam Sandler, Steve Buscemi, Jennifer Aniston, that that is not on Netflix right now, I find confusing. Steve Buscemi is not, would not be totally right for it. But how about Adam Sandler, Andy Samberg, and Jennifer Aniston? Who would play which part? You think well, Andy th- would be the journalist? I, I think Andy would be the journalist. So she would have to, she would have to marry, no, she always does end up marrying Sandler in movies. It's so weird. <laughs> All right, we'll get into that on a different podcast called <laughs> Sandler Thoughts. Uh, all right, well, let's get into this movie, Amy. Philadelphia Story is our feature presentation. The year is 1940. World War II continues. The U.S. renounces its trade treaty with Japan. Race riots break out in Chicago, Harlem, Los Angeles, and Detroit. Scientists conclude that eating ice cream is the leading cause of polio. 
based solely on the stats that more cases are diagnosed in summer, prime ice cream eating days. Uh, MGM debuts its popular duo, Tom and Jerry, and Suit Warner Brothers releases its gruesome twosome, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Benjamin O. Davis Sr. becomes the first African-American general, FDR begins his third but not final term as president, and Nylon Stockings first hit the market. Audiences are loving The Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, Fantasia, and today's film, The Philadelphia Story. It comes in number 44 on the AFI's top 100 list, up seven points from its last position. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Philadelphia Story, it is a fizzy romance about life in the upper class when it commingles with dirty, dirty, hard-scrabble journalists, which is why I think I like it so much. Um, It's based on a play by Philip Berry that he wrote specifically for Catherine Hepburn, who in 1938 was deemed box office poison after bringing a baby. We're going to get into that again in a minute. Uh, He wrote this part for her as rich, upper-class woman Tracy Lord, who's been divorced once, is now getting married the next day, as happens often, apparently, in a Catherine Hepburn movie. She is pit against a few different suitors. Her ex-husband, Carrie Grant, James Stewart as the, as the newspaper reporter, and John Howard as up-and-coming social climber George Kittredge. The movie is directed by the quote-unquote director of women, George Cukor, who you might remember from directing many of the Scarlet scenes in yes. Gone with the Wind. Well, Amy, I know that this movie holds a special place for you. We talked about this in uh, relationship to the last kind of big broad comedy we did, which was Bringing Up Baby. And... I believe that you were saying that this movie is a far superior film to that film. Well, now that we're saying far superior, I feel a little bit like, okay, <laughs> let me scale back, let me scale back a little bit. But I do prefer this movie to Bringing a Baby. I just think this movie has like a wider cast of characters that I enjoy spending more time with. I think this has a really great role for Katherine Hepburn that has more complexity, and it's very much designed to kind of work with the Katherine Hepburn brand and make the audience fall back in love with her. I do think this movie does have a couple quibbles, of course. But, I mean, this movie, I really admire it, I think maybe just on the outermost level, as an example of a very smart actress, Katherine Hepburn, understanding herself, like being able to look at herself, what her problems are connecting to an audience from the outside, and figure out how to work her way in, not just by being written in for a great role, but by buying the rights to that role, by making Hollywood cast her in it, and by like designing her own comeback. I admire all of the brains behind what happened to make this movie happen, and it makes me fall in love with Katherine Hepburn even more. Well, this movie is kind of a response to Bringing Up Baby, because after Bringing Up Baby, she was labeled box office poison, right? And so, uh, what, a couple of years pass, uh, she goes to Broadway, and then she kind of is rebirthed with this film. Is that about right? Yeah, that's about right. And I kind of want to take a minute just to talk about box office poison. Yeah. yeah. Because this is a thing that gets thrown around a lot from 1938. You know, box office poison. So-and-so was declared box office poison in 1938. And what they're talking about when they talk about that is this one specific article written by a man named Harry Brandt, who was the president of the Independent Theater Owners of America. And that's still kind of a thing that exists today. Now it's called NATO, which sounds very militaristic. Yeah. But it's not. It's also like the National Association of Theater Owners. That's where everyone goes to Vegas and they see all the trailers. CinemaCon. Yeah. I used yeah. to go actually for years because I used to be the editor of a magazine called Box Office, which actually was the magazine for the National Theater Owners. Oh, wow. Yeah. Back in the dark days. And I was oh, like all wow. about per screen averages. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got to get you on my FML team. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> uh, like, uh, my FML team, Amy, uh, you looked at me with a shocked face. That is my fantasy movie league team <laughs> where you must uh, kind of set up the perfect box office and it is all based on per screen averages. 
Wow, you really, you really looked at me in the most shocked way. I think not in the entire whatever how many episodes we've done of this show. I've never seen you look so out of sorts. I'm a woman of breeding. Uh, but anyways, Harry Brandt wrote this piece, not called Box Office Poison. This piece was called Dead Cats. It was oh, wow. a very incendiary title. And he said, this is what he said, To America, wake up. Practically all of the major studios are burdened with stars whose public appeal is negligible and are receiving tremendous salaries necessitated by contractual obligations. Among those players whose dramatic ability is unquestioned, but their box office draw is nil, they can be numbered Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Mae West, Joan Crawford, Kay Francis, Norma Shearer, Louise Rayner, John Barrymore, Dolores Del Rio, Catherine Hepburn, Edward Arnold, and Fred Astaire. So he's listing a bunch of people, mostly women. And now the way this piece is usually interpreted is... Harry Brandt was like, people don't like these women, make these women go away. Which is not exactly what he was saying. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more nuanced than that. What he's saying is, the way the star system was set up, these studios had spent a ton of money making movies with these actors, and therefore had to keep making a lot of movies with these actors in order to keep them profitable, and that they were spending too much money on these movies that not that many people wanted to see. He was actually mad more at the producers than the actors, but people usually just think he's mad at the actors. He was mad at producers. He was like, your system is dumb. Don't spend that much on salaries. Spend more just making original movies. And he ends this piece by saying, you know, we're not against the star system, mind you, but we don't think it should dominate the production of pictures. So Hmm. he's just trying to say, shake it up a little bit. But this piece usually gets boiled down to... Everybody hates Joan Crawford and everybody hates um, Catherine Hepburn, which is not entirely fair. But I mean, do you also find, and this is a larger conversation, maybe not to be unpacked fully here, but that women are also the people that are perennially under that like chopping block, like like box office poison would be for a woman, but men kind of escape that thing. We were talking about this uh, the other day, uh, my wife and I, about like Catherine Heigl. Like she just sort of like, nope, we don't like her anymore. And she's kind of shut out because she's difficult or she had some harsh opinions. Yeah, it's hard to think of the men who get the same treatment. I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes there's things like, you know, when we fell in love with Matthew McConaughey for like one year and Mm -hmm. then we were like, no, we hate that guy again. Yeah. And also like when we fell in love with... Jared Leto, and we're like, oh, we love him so much, and we hate him again. It's why I get nervous when we do things like, I love Keanu Reeves, because as soon as we're all like, we all love Keanu Reeves, we will immediately hate Keanu Reeves. We'll find any reason to, and I just want to protect our stars and let us all just feel above average about all of them all the time. Well, I think whenever there's so much love, you are going to take a drop. It's just inevitable. Uh, But it also feels like men can kind of sometimes re- uh, remount that mountain a little bit quicker than sometimes women because they feel like there's an, another person in waiting. So it makes it even more admirable at this point that Catherine Hepburn could have maybe been on the outs and never really gotten back in. And then she kind of came back in in a, in a major way. It's true. And it probably helps that there's just more roles written for men. So it's easier to find a role that people might want to see you in. Yeah. Whereas with women... You're stuck. I mean, Catherine Hepburn made a romantic comedy that didn't do as well as people wanted it to, bringing a baby. And then to come back, she had to come up with the better romantic comedy that people might like her in. And when I was watching this movie, I knew this going into it. And there was one little section of it. And I feel like it was very deliberate. And I don't know if this is directly from the play or if this was the reason why Catherine Hepburn took it. But she takes herself down uh, a peg. Uh, A little bit. Um, So I feel like here's a character talking to her, telling her what they don't like about her, which I think is basically the audience or using this as a surrogate for the audience. And I think by putting her in this position, you're lowering her. And so take a listen to this. 
I suppose you'd still be attractive to any man of spirit, though. There's something engaging about it, this goddess business. Something more challenging to the male than the uh, more obvious charms. Really? Really. We're very vain, you know. This citadel can and shall be taken, and I'm the boy to do it. You seem quite contemptuous of me all of a sudden. No, Red. None of you. Never of you. Red, you could be the finest woman on this earth. I'm contemptuous of something inside of you you either can't help or make no attempt to. Your so-called strength, your prejudice against weakness, your blank intolerance. Is that all? That's the gist of it. Because you'll never be a first-class human being or a first-class woman until you've learned to have some regard for human frailty. It's a pity your own foot can't slip a little sometime. But your sense of inner divinity wouldn't allow that. This goddess must and shall remain intact. There are more of you than people realize. A special class of the American female. The married maidens. So help me, Dexter. If you say another word, I'm I'll... through, Red. For the moment, I've had my say. I just think that moments like this are throughout the film. I want to play one later, too. But she is basically a punching bag for every character. I think this is one of my favorite Catherine Hepburn performances, though. I mean, although bringing up Baby, she's so fucking funny in that movie. And this is much more of the traditional role. I think that's why I love bringing up Baby, her role in that. But I just was blown away by her, not only her ability, and I know it sounds dumb because she's one of our iconic actresses, but she really is a fantastic actress who got to do these really like meaty roles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so interesting that she decided that what her comeback had to be. It was not a, a movie where everybody told her she was great. It was not a movie where she wanders around being incredibly lovable. It was a movie written so that people could tell her what the American audience didn't like about her. Yeah. You know, and that line where she says, you know, you seem quite contemptuous of me all of a sudden. That I mean, that feels so true. Like, she was a woman who had been having great success, being nominated for Oscars. Suddenly the audience turns on her. There's something in who Hepburn was, you know, and... It's kind of hard for me to even understand what it was like in the 30s, how revolutionary it was that she liked to wear pants in public. Because I'm like, of course, pants are great. Why don't, yeah. why don't we all wear pants in public? But this woman who literally wore pants at a time when Louis B. Mayer was like, stop putting her in pants. Don't put her in pants. You know, this woman who was like, wow. I don't need to have kids. Like, I don't need to go through this publicity cycle of being like a mom and inviting you into my home. Like, yeah. I'm going to live my life my own way. I'm going to be really independent behind the scenes, which, of course, contributed to tons of gossip about what her love life really was. You know, she was frightening in a way that I think it's, it is it is hard for me to really put myself in the 30s shoes. And so she had to make a movie that's like, yes, maybe I do act like I'm better than you. Maybe I do talk like I'm better than you. I'm sorry. I would love to see this film with an audience because I really like this film, but it doesn't feel to me like a hilarious comedy. And maybe it was just the way that I watched it. I think a lot of it is like, and I'm, I'm dealing with this a lot of the times when I watch these films, it's like, what are the mores of the forties or the late thirties? And what is except like, cause sometimes I think what seems so crazy or, you know, uh, is very benign now. So it, you know, it's interesting to kind of see, but I saw it more as a dramatic piece. There are some really funny uh, moments in it, but like, there's some great acting in this movie. Like, I, I think that, like, I know that Jimmy Stewart never felt that he was deserving of winning an Oscar for this. And he felt like it was just given to him because he, uh, it was, like, retroactive for Mr. Smith. Uh, and it was also the year he was against Henry Fonda and Grapes of Wrath. But 
he also he's giving I think one of my favorite performances. Cary Grant is doing something so down to earth and small. Like this movie feels very of the now and the way the performances are just like so they're 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 really perfectly nuanced. I can hear that. You know, yeah, I didn't really laugh that much out loud the last time I saw it either. Yeah. Which is interesting because it plays again to that idea of Hepburn maybe not knowing what funny was or people never wondering never being sure that she did know what funny was. Right. You know, because when she would perform this play on Broadway, she cried a lot because to her it actually is an emotional part. You know, here's a woman who thinks she's living her life the right way, who thinks she's marrying to the to the correct person, you know, this kind of stable, upstanding, good yeah. man who thinks she's really lived her life exemplary, really tried to. And everybody tells her she sucks for like 90 minutes. You know, that's brutal. And in the and in the play, yeah, it, she did cry a lot at the emotional scenes because she found it really emotional because for that character it is. But everybody doesn't want to make it emotional. Everybody wants to laugh at her. So George Cooker had to tell her, scale it back. No crying. None of this. Keep it together. Because if you cry, then the movie's going to turn on you again. So I guess the idea being like, they didn't want her to be overly vulnerable. They didn't want her to be overly sympathetic. They didn't want her to be too much of a needy character, essentially. Exactly. It's like they had to figure out how to make a part that was exactly Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. You know, and Philip Berry, he said that one of the things he did when he was writing just the stage play is that he studied her completely. Like, it wasn't even just he thought about her in the abstract. He was like, I watched the way she moved her head. I watched the way she moved her eyes. I incorporated all of her characteristics into this part of, ta- of, of Tracy Lord. It was tailor-made for her. Even though he said that he based the character on this infamous socialite, Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, right? Did you know that? Like, this is the, this woman was so wealthy. They were actually going to shoot the movie on her family's estate. But when they saw the scope of the property, the producers decided it was too large to be realistic for anyone to live like this. Like that literally, (laughs) I mean, so I think the idea being like, they're probably pulling on that kind of wealth uh, and then probably pulling on all of her physical attributes to kind of personify the character. I just got the shudder of what if they like tried to do this with like Paris Hilton. We're just modeling it on Paris Hilton. <laughs> you know, Hepburn was so infatuated with this play and she was also nervous. You know, mm-hmm. she knew what this play would mean to her career if she screwed it up. And the story is, is like the night that it was about to premiere for the first time, she was backstage and she kept just muttering to herself, imagine that you're in Indianapolis. Imagine that you're in Indianapolis because she was so nervous wow. and she was trying to take away some of that because, you know, she said an actress doesn't get many of these parts in a lifetime. And they don't need many was her other kind of secondary part. But this was her part. And, you know, if you remember when we were talking about bringing a baby, she had been dating Howard Hughes off and on. She left Howard Hughes to go to New York because she knew that her career was hitting a snag Mm -hmm. in in L.A. She went to New York and his piece of advice to her when she told him about this play was buy the rights, buy the rights before it goes up on the theater, buy the rights, which is genius because buying those rights is really what brought her career back because – this play was a huge hit. It was so she much. She did like 400 performances of it. Yeah. And kind of the beautiful totem of that is the very last night that she performed this on stage, she said, you know what? I'm going to go out there in the curtain calls as you're opening the curtain, lowering the curtain, opening the curtain, lowering the curtain, take all my bows. But I asked that after I do my last bow, don't close the curtain again. Keep it open because I want to imagine that this play never shut down. I love that. Now, I don't mean to correct you because I could be wrong, but didn't Howard Hughes buy the rights for her? Maybe. I don't know. Like, I think I've heard that story, but I also heard that he just gave her the advice. But maybe he bought it for her as like a lot. Like as a I gift. Think, I had read that yeah. he had gotten, he re, that she received them as a gift 
from Howard Hughes. Well, if so, that is the nicest gift somebody could give anybody. But then I do know that she deferred her salary for 45% of the profits of the film. And that was a choice that she definitely made. And that was a very smart choice because not only does she own the rights, but then she basically took in, I mean, most of the profits. I mean, half, almost half of the profits, which is a crazy thing again for the 1940s to have that much control, you know, as a, a leading actor. I mean, yeah, I mean, to add some kind of weird shading to this moment in her life when she's doing this play, there's this book called Catherine the Great, Secrets of a Life Revealed, and it's a biography of her that is basically about her sex life in ways that I'm like, I don't know how much I should even believe Ooh. this book. Like, this book is kind of crazy. Yeah. This book is 100% crazy. Uh, this book says, like, when she was doing this play on stage with um, Joseph Cotton, who we saw in Citizen right. Kane, and also this man, Heflin, that she was having an affair with both of them to add to, like, the oh, tension wow. of it. And that when she decided that when that she was ready to give up them in order to have Cary Grant and James Stewart as her co-stars instead of them, that Heflin just deserted the roadshow production, never talked to her again and was wow. furious about it. I mean, this book, by the way, is just like super crazy. Like When it gets into the making of the actual movie movie, I don't know how much I want to believe this, but it says that everybody on set just wanted to sleep with Jimmy Stewart. Like everybody. Like George really? Cougar wanted to sleep with Jimmy Stewart. Cary Grant wanted to sleep with Jimmy Stewart. Kate herself wanted to sleep with Jimmy Stewart, that they all heard that his penis was twice the size of Clark Gable's, which is a rumor that, according to this book, Carol Jeez. Lombard was spreading. Uh, now I'm just like insane. But what everybody is was going after him. I don't want to think of Jimmy Stewart's large penis. Think of Jimmy Stewart's no, large penis. No, I don't want to do it. For me. Okay, then think about this. Think about a moment in this book. Again, giant asterisk. This is just me being gossipy and not saying I believe uh-huh. it. That Jimmy Stewart told them that he masturbated five times a day. Jesus Christ, this is the most, like, lovely man, and you're never filling my head with this kind of blasphemy about, but oh. doesn't it add to his performance? I mean, I get, I mean, well, that he had the energy to perform it after jerking it five times a day. You know, if we're going to be talking about some kind of negative Jimmy Stewart, if the sassy Jimmy Stewart that we don't yeah. always want to picture, let's just... Picture that in our head as we listen to him no, prank calling around at the rich people's house. Uh-oh, Liz, what did I tell you? Look, how do you like this? Living room, sitting room, terrace, pools, stables. That's probably so they can talk to the horses without having them in the house. Don't, Mike. Yes? Uh, this is the bridal suite. Would you send up a couple of caviar sandwiches and a bottle of beer? What? Who is this? Yeah, this is the voice of a doom calling. Your days are numbered to the seventh son of the seventh son. I mean, come on. Not only is he being a snot-nosed punk, you gotta say, that's some big dick energy. Oh, Jimmy well, Stewart, big dick energy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's big dick energy. I mean, it seems more like he's just, you know, kind of blown away by the, the wealth. He's upset. I, I don't think he's I think maybe his big dick energy would be a scene where he's singing the song from Wizard of Oz and carrying Catherine Hepburn to her bedroom in front of her fiance that she's marrying the next day. Now, that is some big dick energy. I mean, he doesn't even look uh, at all daunted. Uh, he's just like, and I'm bringing her up to her bedroom later. Like that, that to me, I mean, we want to talk about BDE. That's some BDE. Um, yeah, speaking of Jimmy Stewart, I really love him in this film. He really plays a lot of different levels here. And, and we talk about vulnerability and seeing him in that sequence where he is drunk, there is something that 
in watching it, I feel like he captures the essence of drunk. I, I think it's one of the best drunk performances I've ever seen. It just is, it's fun, it's endearing, it's believable, it's just slightly off. I just, I, I love the way he like peers through the window of the car to get the car. To, and then his whole interaction with uh, Cary Grant over at his house and the way Cary Grant is kind of dealing with him a little bit at arm's length, but not, you know, in an aggressive way, just sort of like, okay, enough, enough. Yeah, when I was pulling clips for the show, basically half the clips I wanted to pull turned out to be just different scenes of Jimmy Stewart drunk. I mean, it's like watching Tom Hanks be drunk, who was also oh. a, a bit of wonderful drunk. There's a little bit, I want to play some bits of the moment of him at Cary Grant's house, because he was apparently improvising a lot of his drunk nut stuff, especially here when he's in Cary Grant's house yeah. being drunk. And there's a moment where he catches Cary Grant so off guard by improving a hiccup yes. that Cary Grant apologizes for the hiccup. It's extra haven! What's up? You are. I only hope it's worth it. Come on in. I bring you greetings. Cinderella's slipper. It's called champagne. Champagne is a great leveler. Leveler. It makes you my equal. Well, I wouldn't quite say that. Well, almost my equal. C.K. Dexter Haven, I would like to talk to you. Well, let's go in the talking room. Don't tell me the party's over so soon. No, no, I just felt like talking to you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I wonder if I might borrow a drink. Certainly. Coles to Newcastle. Hmm? Excuse me. Hmm? (laughs) I love that scene. It's a great scene. It's... And the way he's just staring at Cary Grant is so, like, you can't take your eyes off of Jimmy Stewart in that part at all. But I also love that idea, that that first line in that scene where he talks about, like, class. And this is a movie that is about class and where you fit in. And and if if high society makes you a better person or, you know, can you kind of mix it up? And we have everyone in this movie trying to go outside of their class, but angry at everybody else's class. It's a really interesting debate. I didn't really think about this movie like that until I was rewatching certain scenes. Like, oh, it's so, it's so much about what this movie is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at the three people that Catherine Hepburn has as potential romances, mm-hmm. she has Cary Grant, who was just born wealthy. They always keep talking about how they were grown up together. Mm-hmm. He is considered of her class. Right. And she doesn't want to be with him at the beginning because she just thinks he, is, he didn't behave properly in, right. his, in how his class is supposed to act. And we are introduced to Cary Grant punching her or just face palming her. He's kind her. of doing like the alien face hugger. Yeah. Yeah. After she breaks his golf club. Um And then you have the person that she's supposedly in love with and wants to get married. You know, John Howard is George Kittredge. He's a guy who grew up very poor but did the American dream thing. Mm -hmm. He worked his way up, and he's introduced to somebody with a lot of ambitions towards being in the high class. You know, you get the sense he's going to run for a senator someday. Acting the part but not actually being the part, Exactly. And they're showing him up in all these little ways. He doesn't know how to get on a horse. He doesn't know what yar means. Right. Yar. 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 But this idea of, um, at one moment, Cary Grant accuses him of being below her class to Catherine mm-hmm. Hepburn. And she's so offended that he's even acknowledging class. Right. You know, and he means like, no, he's below your class in terms of just the fact that he's not cool enough. He can't hang. Like, not even that he was poor, but just that he's not up to your level as a person. And then there's Jimmy Stewart, who is just like working class, newspaper reporter, intellectual class, maybe, mm-hmm. Brahmin. And he's the one who seems more obsessed with class than, honestly, anybody else in this entire movie because he feels like he doesn't belong. 
And in not belonging, he takes it out on everybody. He has to lower down the rich in order to feel more at home there. Well, he views the rich as people he can't even connect to. It's through those eyes of these stereotypes that he has. Like he thinks, and he's very prejudicial to all the rich people. He doesn't think that they belong. And he's putting himself on that level. They're not saying it to him, even though they act out like kind of the the wealthy idea to kind of keep this ruse going of them writing the right article for Spy Magazine. But it's interesting to see that his character, I think, has one of the best arcs in the entire film because I think he realizes that we are all just people. And if you get past the class, you can actually connect with the person. And and he does it from, you know, the most blatant way, which is he falls in love. I mean, he's he, on the verge of marrying Catherine Hepburn, this woman he despises before even meeting her. And, and I wonder, you know, where we're at as a society where we're kind of wanting to lower the, the rich. Because I feel like in the past, other movies were like, we want to obtain the rich. We want to be in that thing. And here it was more like the everyman, you know, is, is uh, it, we're bringing them down a little bit. You know, we're not making them so hoi polloi in a way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's weird because I'm very much in this moment of eat the rich. Right. Or like eat the rich, destroy the rich, deep fry the rich, do whatever we take, take their yachts, use them in, to become Shoney's buffets, whatever. Right. I mean, I'm very, I'm very down with the rich right now. I'm not into the Shoney's, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I've never eaten at a Shoney's. Yeah. I passed by them. The, the fact that the message of this movie is in one way, arguably like be nice to the rich people. They're just like us. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, oh, uh, 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 do I have to? But, I mean, it is funny to watch the rich people send up the idea of what rich is. You know, especially, one of my favorite characters in here is Virginia Wheedler, who plays uh, her little sister, Dinah Lord. One of the best performances in this film. And Dinah Lord just literally ballet dancing in the film after being introduced as a kid who's just wearing, like, baggy pants and, like, a white shirt. Mm -hmm. Ballet dancing in in a bunch of diamonds just to play up this idea of the stereotypes people have of rich people. Ah, how do you do? Are you not? Oh, I, we, I, I am I'm, Dinah Lord. My real name is Diana, but my sister changed it. I'm Elizabeth Imbry. This is Macaulay Connor. Enchanté de vous voir. Enchanté de faire votre connaissance. I spoke French before I spoke English. My early childhood was spent in Paris where my father worked in a bank. The house of Morgan. Really? C'est vrai. Absolument. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's so terrific. And then a couple of minutes later, you have Catherine Hepburn coming on. And I love these parts where actors are playing dual roles. You know, they're not just mm-hmm. playing the character. They're playing the character playing somebody else that the character is. And with Catherine, Catherine Hepburn, it's like she's playing, I think, so many levels. She's playing Tracy Lord, but then she's also playing... Catherine Hepburn is Tracy Lord on some level, but then she's playing this other level of like Catherine Hepburn as Tracy Lord, making fun of what people think Catherine Hepburn is like at her worst. Yeah. Which is this woman who kind of saunters in and in the most grandiose, passive aggressive way, figures out all the weak spots of who Jimmy Stewart and who Miss Embry are when she doesn't know or like them at all. I'm, I'm Mike to my friends. Of whom you have many, I'm sure. English history, it's always fascinated me. Cromwell, Robin Hood, Jack the Ripper. Where did he teach? Uh, I mean, your father. Oh, well, a little high school in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend. It sounds like dancing, doesn't it? You must have had a most happy childhood there. Yeah, it was terrific. I'm so glad. No, I didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry. Why? 
Uh, well, lack of wherewithal, I guess. <laughs> but that doesn't always cause unhappiness, does it? Not if you're the right kind of man. George Kittredge, my fiancé, never had anything either, and he... Are either of you married? No. Uh, no. You, you mean you were, but now you're divorced. Well, the fact <laughs> is... Well, come now, Miss Embry, surely you're not ashamed of it. Well, of course I'm not ashamed of it. What? Well, it, it was years ago. I was I was only a kid and a loop. Well, good heavens, Liz, you never told me anything. You never asked me. Well, I know, but you... Joe Smith, hardware. I mean, I love that. Like, there's this tension between the two of them, between Miss Embry and between Jimmy yeah. Stewart. And she just nails it right away. She's like, what is their weakness here in their relationship? And it's kind of this idea that Miss Embry has always assumed they might wind up as a couple, but then he doesn't really know her, but then he should know her better. And she just makes them awkward. Like, here they've come to spy on her life, and she immediately is like, boom. Oh, and Ruth Hussey is so great in this role. And, and... You know, it's a film that has just great female characters all across the board. I mean, we talked about Dinah uh, a little bit as well, which was played by uh, Virginia Welder. But I feel like this is a movie where the women are outsmarting the men. And that's not even really the main story of the plot. It's just like, but it's interesting because I think we've seen a lot of male dominated films where, you know, women to get a little bit more short shrift and and this one is is a real like exception it was kind of refreshing to see yeah what i love is that at every moment where you think the plot might go along this one route of oh she doesn't know that these two people are there to spy on her mm-hmm. wedding she immediately knows that they're there to spy yeah. on her wedding like she's aware of everything the whole time and so is Dinah. Dinah's always the first person to really you take out on what's happening you take out like the first act twist by revealing it to everyone. So the only people that are really in the dark are are Macaulay and and Elizabeth. Like and so it's it's a fun way to watch the film in a way cuz it's like a, a reverse mystery. Yeah, I love that cuz you know, I think suspense films can be really really interesting, mm-hmm. but I do like it when a film has the confidence to be like all right, all right, all right. You know the joke now, they know the joke straight away. And what happens now that we all know what's on the cards? We should talk really fast though about George Cooker. You know, we've touched right. on him a brief bit in the past. He and Catherine Hepburn had this really, really long history together. They made tons of movies before this point. They knew each other really well. And he knew her personality really well. And they were comfortable fighting. I mean, the story is like the first time that Cukor met Catherine Hepburn, they had a huge fight over the costume she was supposed to be wearing in this film. And then he made fun of the clothes she was wearing when she just showed up at his office. He was like, those are supposed to be expensive and fashionable. And they're ugly. They're stinking. He made her get her hair cut. I mean, Cooker is kind of an interesting figure. You know, he's this guy who, here we are having this movie about the rich and famous. He was a middle-class kid who really wanted to be a rich and famous person. You know, his kid, his family, when he was growing up, they did, they took him to the theater. They went away for the summer. Mm. They did things they couldn't afford because they wanted him to be raised with a little bit of marriage, to think of himself as better. And so when he became a rich screenwriter, that was the life he lived. I mean... Catherine Hepburn would always talk about the dinner parties he would throw and how crazy they are. And she writes about them in her book, Me. She writes, you know, she has pages, by the way, more pages about his house than she does about the Philadelphia story itself. Wow. She says, he loved all of his treasures and that they represented his dream, a child's dream, that once upon a dream come true, that I'm the prince, that I'm the princess, I'm riding a great white stallion. And that at his house, he had flowers so tall in the center of the table that she would sneak in before dinner and she would cut them all down because you couldn't see each other at the table. And that his walls were leather, that there was crystal everywhere, that he had Matisse's. Igor Stravinsky would be at his house. Groucho Marx would be at his house. They would corner her at booths and just talk at her. That he was really 
a man who I think wanted to star in the Philadelphia story, be one of the right. people in that house and live so it better. Interesting. You know, it's like I always find that kind of, you know, not crazy wealth, but like this idea of like reliving a part of your childhood that's closed off. I, I think it most famously, uh, Barbara Streisand like created a mall in the bottom of her house. Like, because as a kid, she like, you know, it kind of like she wanted to, she could never go to those places. So she basically created the thing that she couldn't have. Now it's like in her basement. It's like amazing. It's, the pictures of it are stunning. I mean, I love that kind of pop psychology mm-hmm. getting into a person's brain, you know? And it's weird because when you read more about their stories, you have to do a little bit of like exhaling and forgiving, you know, because Kuko would do things like, he once slapped her on the set of um, Little Women uh-huh. because her character is supposed to run up the stairs holding ice cream. And he was like, if you run up and laugh, you are going to spill this ice cream on your dress and we don't have a second dress for you. So do not spill this ice cream. And she ran and she spilled the ice cream and he went and he hit her, which is a little bit like ballsy. And, you know, Claudette Colbert would say that part of why he was known as a woman's director is really just because he felt more comfortable telling women what to do. But maybe it's all come back around because I did hear that Greta Gerwig would just slap the shit out of Timothy uh, Chalamet on the new Little Women. Oh <laughs> just, just to kind of get it back, just to kind of flip the script. <laughs> you know, but I do kind of want to read this thing that Catherine Hepburn said about Kukor because I think it's really interesting. You know, we talk a lot about who the yeah. great directors are. And she was always a little bit miffed that Kukor wasn't put in that cast of great directors. Mm-hmm. And she said in part she thinks it was because he had this stigma of being a woman's director. Oh, interesting. And here's kind of how she analyzed it. She says, really, rather than think of him as a woman's director, think of him as an actor's director. And that Kukor was so interested in making the actor shine, whereas people like John Ford are really interested in plot. And so when you would, you know, say, talk to John Ford about his movie, he would just want to talk to you about all the cool things he did and all mm-hmm. his angles. Like John Huston, she said, was exactly the same way, that they didn't mean that these men didn't have interest in the actors. It just meant that they were more interested in themselves as directors. Yet when Kukor would talk to the press about his movies, instead of talking about, you know, the sets and everything, he would talk about what was interesting to him, which was his actors and his performances. So the stories that will be written about them are really different. A John Ford story would be all about John Ford and how great he was. Right. And a Kukor story would be about him sharing the spotlight with his cast, giving the spotlight to his cast. And in a way that came to make him almost written out of the film history for what he was a good at. Yeah. And I mean, here's a director who was nominated what, like at least five times, one only once for My Fair Lady. Um, but like, a lot of the films that he did do, you know, uh, are films that are remembered. I mean, obviously, like Adam's Rib, uh, you know, this uh, the movies that I feel like Philadelphia Story, uh, obviously a little bit Gone with the Wind. He like I think he's made a name for himself as being someone who whose movies like stood this test of time. Like, oh, let's remake that or let's kind of like play on that theme, because I think that like. The, the things I see that he has done, I mean, even all the way up to uh, My Fair Lady is, you know, that's a character piece. And, and we've been remaking that forever, I feel like. Forever and forever and yeah. forever. I mean, I guess if there is one thing that kind of lives forward on from the Philadelphia story in, in maybe the way that Catherine Hepburn winds up being most known for, you know, her partnership with Spencer Tracy mm-hmm. becomes the thing that really defines her from a few years after this point on. And Spencer Tracy would always say he didn't want to work with Katherine Hepburn because he would be like, how can I do a picture with a woman who has dirt under her fingernails and is of ambiguous sexuality and always wears pants? And he saw Philadelphia's story and he was like, "Okay, fine, I will work with her. And that's when they fell in love? 
I mean, or that's when they became each other's companions. Got with it. Beards or. And nobody ever agrees on any wow. of this stuff. Wow. Okay. Interesting. 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 All right. Okay. So we are about to talk to somebody whose career I have been monitoring very closely over the last year. I find it incredibly exciting that she is here, that she exists, that she is making movies, and I get to watch these movies. Her name is Katie Silberman. She is the writer of Set It Up. She also wrote Booksmart. She also wrote Isn't It Romantic? She is bringing back the romantic comedy in a big way, and I, for one, am in love with her for it. Hello, Katie. So basically, Philadelphia's story is viewed as one of AFI's top five best romantic comedies ever. And I wanted to know, in your mind, like, what are your favorite things that you obviously did not work on, your favorite romantic comedies, like your, you know, the, the films that you really respond to? Oh, that's such a good question. I think, well, the Philadelphia story is definitely on there. I think the Philadelphia story is the, is the best example of a comedy of remarriage, the screwball comedy genre of the 40s and 50s, which I'm particularly drawn to. I would say my favorite romantic comedies are kind of broken down in those same decades because I think as time passed, they evolved in such interesting ways. So, you know, bringing up baby, Roman Holiday and the Philadelphia story, some older black and white romantic comedies that really become um beholden to not only the rules of the time, literally what they were supposed to put out there, but the societal rules. And it's really interesting to see them evolve that way. Yeah. And then I would say, obviously, When Harry Met Sally is such a, I mean, is maybe the best movie ever made, but such a specific slice of life of, I think, this period in the 80s when women were in the workforce in a real way and this equality of the sexes was a big thing. And so the idea of whether men and women could be friends was very applicable to people who were probably interacting with and becoming close to a lot more people of the opposite sex than they ever had been outside of just the spouses of their friends or the friends of their spouses. Those off the top of my head, I mean, I also love like rom-coms like One Fine Day, which I don't think gets enough attention, which I love. One of my um, favorites. I love that movie. Uh, I, I love that movie. That's why I think it's so refreshing to see a really well-executed uh, romantic comedy. Like, it's like, and then I imagine, like, as you were deconstructing it for Isn't It Romantic, like, what was it like to kind of look at it in an opposite way? I mean, even though you know what it is because you've written it, but, like, how is it to kind of deconstruct it a little bit? That was so much fun. It, that was really fun, too, because I got to write that with my very dear friend, Dana Fox. And so that was a really fun challenge in trying to kind of have our cake and eat it, too, and acknowledge all of the things that we love about romantic comedies in exactly what you were saying, not only because they make you feel great, but because in general, and this is something I can talk about in terms of all the movies that we just referenced, and and I also think why the Philadelphia story is such a perfect example of kind of what started a lot of the qualities that we love the most about these movies is that in the best ones, whether it's One Fine Day or When Harry Met Sally or the Philadelphia story, it's about two people who really challenge each other to be the best version of themselves. And that's also this kind of hate to love dynamic, I think, is because when you're not trying to impress someone in the beginning, you let them see exactly who you are. Yes. And then they really challenge you to grow, whether that's C.K. Dexter Howard and Tracy Lord and kind of the most intense version of it, where if it's an ex-spouse, they really know warts and all everything about you and can force you to grow and, and to face yourself in a way that that challenges and causes that growth. Or in one fine day when they see each other in the very beginning and dislike each other immediately. And because of that, they're able to very cleverly call each other out all day on things that probably someone else wouldn't. So that knowing that that was the foundation of what we loved about it, isn't it romantic was so much fun because it allowed us to go back 
to a lot of these different generations and iterations of romantic comedies and look at what hasn't aged as well. (laughs) One of the things I think is so funny is you talked about how like back in the Philadelphia story days, you know, the different societal roles they had then. One of the ones that Paul and I are always fascinated by is that people are always just getting married impulsively or like tomorrow or like it's time. And, you know, it seems like one of the hurdles of writing a romantic comedy today is we do not live in that world. If somebody even calls you on the phone, you're a little spooked. You know, we move slower. So, like, how do you get totally. stakes in a, in a world that doesn't just make big decisions like this? Well, it's, I mean, it is funny. In Philadelphia Story, it, a proposal is like a second date. It's like right. Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn have kissed one time. And he's like, okay, I know what to do. And gets down on one day. It's insane. But I think that... There's an element to the way, you know, that's so interesting, too, just in terms of the comedy of remarriage, which I think is that even back then, people acknowledged that the most interesting and dynamic stories were were ones where people knew each other very well and had ups and downs and could challenge each other through those ups and downs. And so, but to imply that there was any sort of intimacy that would that would play into that that dynamic they had to have been married and divorced that was the only way they could get past right. the, the code so it's it's kind of like if you just remove the wedding ring from act one it follows a lot of the same dynamics even for something like set it up when you're putting it together it's the intimacy that's growing over the course of the story kind of mirrors the intimacy that ck dexter howard and tracy lord have in the beginning of the philadelphia story it's just a traditional romantic engagement that we see now would have been a marriage if they were going to show it on screen and so now we can grow it in that similar way and it's interesting too i think to try and tell modern stories that way because marriage was such a, a assumed ending for everyone that now telling a story about two people who are theoretically choosing to be together forever it seems like a much bigger deal to really tie yourself to someone, especially if you're telling a story about younger people and, and what, you know, when they would make that choice, it maybe seems more meaningful than it would in earlier movies when it was kind of the thing you did after you went on three dates to the movies. And then you're like, okay, I guess we're getting married. So <laughs> it's fun to try and set up relationships that feel not that they need to end in, in marriages or engagements or anything like that, but examining in that same way, like why would someone in modern times choose to be with someone in, in a monogamous you know, theoretically forever way, which is happening less and less. I mean, I want to also talk about casting, you know, because I love Zoe Deutsch in particular and set it up. And I remember the first time that one of my friends, um, the film writer, Alan Scherstall, we both saw Vampire uh, Diaries. Wait, not Vampire Diaries. What is yes. it called? The Vampire, why am I forgetting? Vampire, the Vampire Academy. Vampire Academy. Academy. I actually Vampire love Vampire Academy. Academy and I'm so sad <laughs> that I blanked on the name. But he watched Vampire Academy and he was like, oh, that's Rosalind Russell. You know, when he saw yes. Zoe Deutsch's performance. Yes. And you got the same thing out of her. I mean, what is it about the kind of finding somebody who can do this old fashioned type of fast, intelligent talk? It was so much fun, first of all, to, to see her and realize that not only could she do it, she was going to elevate anything that was on the page. I think she's a genius. And I also think Glenn Powell is similar in that Absolutely. it's such a specific rhythm to to hit. It's such a specific frequency that they both needed to hit. And it's not only their speed and their charm and their delivery, but then the chemistry with each other. But it, it was a dream come true to find someone who was as talented and as kind of naturally organic with it and not playing a part or feel like she's playing an accent. I, I gave her a gift afterwards, which was a big poster of Catherine Hepburn because she loves Catherine Hepburn. She is one of her heroes. And I really think that she is the kind of person and, and possesses the kind of grounded intelligence while still being really funny where you can throw her anything and you believe her, but you also are so 
delighted by her just speed and wit and brain. And that's what I love about so many of these classic romantic comedies also is that the women were really smart and funny and and you were just they were going so fast you were going to go along with whatever they were saying and you were already in by the time you realized what was happening oh yeah Catherine Hepburn between this movie and bringing up baby it's two dynamically different performances but both are these like incredibly smart capable characters like they are like you don't want to mess with either one of them but they are so dynamically different absolutely there's also the story of what was going on behind the scenes with Philadelphia story is like in so many ways it's a framework for the kinds of romantic comedies that I personally loved going forward and you can see how much it inspired all of those not just the dynamics between the love interest but the I mean it's like to the first movie to set up the trope of the journalist who wants to do real work, who's stuck doing oh, uh, right. like really trivial stories, which usually we, we gave the women, but this was the first movie to have that. It was just the guy who was doing it. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, like, sometimes I wonder why more actors of this generation don't realize what it can do for you and the way the audience feels about you to do more romantic comedies. You, I, I always think of people like Tom Hiddleston, who I get why he does so many Marvel films. I get that they've made him a national, multinational celebrity. But if Tom Hiddleston was in the kind of movies that Hugh Grant used to do in the 90s, oh my God, that just seems like he could be yes. filling his pockets with love from the audience. This is a crazy question to ask you because I'm putting you on the spot, but I will ask it nonetheless and say, if you were to recast this film... And, you know, it, it, who would you like to see in a reimagined version of the Philadelphia story? Like with modern day cast or maybe, you know what, we'll keep it open. We'll keep it open to anybody. You could do anything you want. Um, I would say, you know, I think having worked with Zoe and seen what she can do with a scene of dialogue and seen kind of how she can play strong and smart and brilliant and vulnerable at the same time. I think she would crush any remake of a Catherine Hepburn movie. I would be first in line to see that. It would make me so, so happy. I also think, you know, we have so many amazing actresses kind of in this age range right now. I think Emma Stone could crush any of these mm-hmm. roles. You know, she's now obviously a wonderful director who I love working with, but I think Olivia Wilde has the same kind of brilliant delivery that could really crush a role like this. Um, any of those guys I would be excited about. And then in terms of the men, obviously Paul Shear. Yes, also, finally. Yeah. See, Amy? <laughs> you see? <laughs> um, I mean, Glenn would destroy a role like that. I, in either, What's not fun about Glenn is I think he could play C.K. Dexter Howard or Macaulay Connor equally well. I mean, I, you know who I adore and I think is, is like ripe for a movie like this is O'Shea Jackson Jr. Oh, who, yeah is so funny and so charming. And I think that he could play any role Jimmy Stewart played. I mean, that's the other thing we were talking about, whether a movie pulled up or not. It is hard to watch this and not recognize that there's not a single not white person in it. So oh, yeah. We've... exciting about going forward. You know, I, maybe you already know this, and if not, I apologize for shocking you. But When Harry Met Sally is not on the AFI Top 100 list. And to me, that does really surprise me. I right? Know. It just seems to speak to me to some sort of idea of like, how do we elevate romantic comedies as films that really are deserving of respect, especially when they're in color and not black and white? I think we're safer applauding the black and white ones because we're like, oh, at least it's old. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it, it shocked me when I learned that this movie won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. Like the thought that there was a time when romantic comedies would win Oscars, let alone be nominated for them. So I don't know what it'll take to to have them be taken more seriously 
both going forward kind of as movies being released as opposed to, to a guilty pleasure. Or, you know, I think sometimes it surprises people when they consider Annie Hall a romantic comedy or when they consider certain movies. You know, I thought The Silver Linings Playbook was a romantic comedy that just kind of disguised itself as an Oscar movie. It was structurally set up that way. And it really was about that same kind of it was about a relationship dynamic the same way. I think if you would cut a different trailer, you could make it seem like something else. So I don't know if we have to kind of Trojan horse it and surprise, you know, trick people into realizing that they're loving and watching a romantic comedy, or if as we make more and more that maybe are a throwback to the original screwball or when Harry met Sally, just character heavy and dialogue heavy and very focused movies. You know, one thing that I really love about the Philadelphia story is how seriously it takes all three characters that you get a lot of scenes with them alone. and, And there's a lot of attention paid to their dreams outside of romance and their careers and their lives and their interests. And I think that's what makes a great romantic comedy. That's the same with, uh, with when Harry met Sally, obviously, as we follow them through their lives, that's the same with one fine day that both of their jobs are so important to them. They have such rich and full lives outside of whatever, you know, spark is happening between the two of them. And so I think those are the movies I think that remain elevated above the genre in general are the ones that people connect with the characters that well. So I hope that that's kind of the continuing momentum and we'll just shove more and more of these movies back on. I'm willing to start a march or a protest, whatever we need to get when Harry met Sally on the list. You guys tell me and I will, I will spear. Oh, absolutely. You are awesome. Thank (laughs) you so much. (laughs) We had such a fun time having you. So honored to be a part of this. Thank you so much for, for including me. I love talking to Katie because what really rang true to me in what she was saying was the idea how generationally like new romantic comedies have to come in because they're talking about how people fall in love in the present day. And I think that's part of the the charm of these movies. We all have our romantic comedies, the ones that speak out to us. I would say that a lot of people who are probably in their uh, young teens to early 20s, The Kissing Booth is very big for them. I know that that movie was giant on Netflix because it spoke to them at an age and a time that's appropriate for them. And and I love that idea that we all have our own touchstones through romantic comedies. Interesting thing about, we were talking about the way that women are presented in this film, uh, the idea that, did you hear Louis B. Mayer objected to Katherine Hepburn wearing a pantsuit? Yes, and she looks so good in pants. What's wrong? That's a great outfit, by the way. But yeah, I thought that was such an interesting thing. It was like, what do you, I mean, I know you have a lot more knowledge about this era. Like, was that just because it was unfeminine or was it to be not as sexy as a dress might be? Or was it too masculine? What was what was the idea, you think? I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think he wanted audiences to see her as more feminine than she wanted to be seen. Mm-hmm. And so he thought maybe if he put her in a bunch of ruffles, people would love her more. And mm-hmm. I think she wanted to be kind of like what the movie is. She wants to be loved for who she is. And, and, and she looks so good in pants. And you can't help but notice how well, you know, Adrian is most is her like really famous tailor in, in this moment of, in her life. He figures out these ways to dress her that make her still look really sexy and glamorous. He's always focusing on her waist. Yes, I love that. The little corset was great. It's so beautiful. You know, and he dresses her, I think, so well scene by scene for what's happening. You know, she has that moment 
where everybody's calling her the goddess and he has her dressed in this bathing costume that kind of looks like a toga. She mm-hmm. looks like a goddess. And then later on when Jimmy Stewart is telling her that she reminds him of a star, you know, something distant and burning right. and cold and far away and Holocaust, I guess Holocaust, this was right before we knew that Holocaust was just only a negative word. Right. Or we only used it that way. You know, he calls her a Holocaust and you're like, whoa. But he has her dressed in that scene in like these kind of star-like glittering rhinestone things. And he's just always kind of slightly matching what people are, are describing her as with what she's wearing. The one that I think is really interesting, too, is her wedding dress. It basically looks like she's wearing ship knots around mm-hmm. her waist. I like that it's outfit. It's so strange. I didn't even know it was a wedding dress, really. Like, yeah. I keep forgetting it. It looks like just something she would just wear. Well, because she is wearing it in a very casual way. It wasn't like she put, like, it's as if she put on that wedding dress and came down to be doing normal business around the house. Like, it's not, uh, that's why I was like, is it a wedding dress or is that just like a dress that she's wearing pre-wedding? But I guess it is. I, I guess it is. Yeah, I mean, in her world, it looks like what you wear to breakfast, but it's also a wedding dress. And I don't know if it's maybe some sort of costume or tell mm-hmm. that it looks so nautical to me with the rope at her waist. Well, like that in, maybe she's being pulled in or, yeah. Yeah, and that she's falling in love with a guy who has a boat for her. Right. You know, or yeah. they're like boating types, swimming types, if that's what's happening. Well, I want to talk to you also about like this idea of how this movie kind of portrays sex, right? We we are in this world where we can't do too much with sex, but I was surprised at how much we could do with drunk. We want to show people of one sort of manners, but not another sort of manners. And and why is drunk more acceptable? And, and, and you know, really, for Catherine Hepburn, her character never drinks, never drinks. And then this is when she drinks the night before her wedding. And it's when we see her at her most loose. And, and this is when she realizes, I mean, she essentially goes, oh, you know, drinking released me from this man. It let me like, it, it untied, it unmoored me from this boating man, you know, like, I, but there is something interesting about that, how, we could never say, oh, like, good sex got her there or, or you know, or that guy had, you know, she had bad sex with that guy. It's like, I think it should come from a more passionate place, but it has to come from more of a, well, let's get them as drunk as we can and they can really reveal what they feel because they, they do know how they feel. They just can't articulate it, which is an, it's a, it's an odd way of. It's the Love Island. Yeah. <laughs> the Bachelorette. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Bachelor in Paradise. It's always happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, there's this lovely little musical cue when she starts pounding champagne and they're just like to emphasize how much she's drinking when she says she never drinks. I love, I love stuff like that. You know, it actually reminds me of too, uh, and not to keep on going back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but when uh, DiCaprio's character is asked about The Great Escape and every time he's that he's mentioning that, like a piano comes in, like, gong, gong, <laughs> like it just emphasizes every single time. It, it's a it's great, true. yeah, it's a great way to just to kind of like point the audience is like emotionally connect you to what's going on here. Yeah, there's something about the harp that always feels like the kind of like dreamy kind of fast forward oh you now you're entering into the twilight zone yeah yeah kind of sound but yeah i mean the thing is is like this movie is so weird right because it's kind of a reverse taming of the shrew instead Mm -hmm. of like we're going to tame the shrew it's like we're going to break the statue you know we're going to take this woman who's perfect now and mess her up a little bit the way that she makes her fiance like rub his pants in the dirt but she all but it's weird because we're introduced to her you know Roughly, you know, tackling 
her, you know, fiance and making him dirty. So you'd be like, oh, so she's the rich person who doesn't want to be rich. But yet we're, but the scene before she's kind of lounging on the couch. You see her surrounded by these gifts, you know, talking about omelet. Yeah. And then, you know, not throughout being the, able to spell omelet. Yeah. And then you see her throughout the film and, and you're kind of, it's weird. I like, I mean, on that level, because she seems like she's a person to get down in the dirt and get messy, but then she also seems like she is, what do they call her? A prig? Uh, or a prude, yeah. you know, it's like they, they kind of treat her in both ways. Cause early on, I'm like, Oh, are we just getting that? She's kind of like the non rich, rich person, but no, she is the rich, rich person. Yeah. I mean, I think the strange thing for me with this movie is I like it, I guess, anthropologically mm-hmm. because I keep having to stop and check myself too, because everybody in this movie seems to dislike her, right? you know? And when I was reading the reviews and I'll read some of them in a bit, all of the re- reviews just talk about how terrible Tracy Lord is. And I watched this movie and I'm like, I think she's great. I, I do like, too. Coming from the like modern go girl generation, it's hard for me to see the moments where she's wrong in people's eyes of the 30s. But people are telling her, you suck. And I mean, the most apparent moment of that is what her father tells her. Like this scene, if you've not seen the movie, this scene was jaw dropping. Yeah, like we needed to hear that because like kind of as context, if you haven't seen it, Tracy has been avoiding her dad and trying to boycott him from the wedding because right. her dad has been sleeping with a showgirl in New York. And she says, you know, for her mom's sake, her mom needs to cut them off, mm-hmm. you know, and not talk to her dad anymore. And her mom has this kind of sad moment. She's like, OK, well, now I have my self-respect and no husband. Right. And this is the movie kind of taking that even one step further by her dad's defense of why, why, why the way she's acting towards him is wrong. That's very wise of you, Margaret. What most wives fail to realize is that their husband's philandering has nothing whatever to do with them. Oh? Then what has it to do with? A reluctance to grow old, I think. I suppose the best mainstay a man can have as he gets along in years is a daughter. The right kind of daughter. How sweet. No, no, no. I'm talking seriously about something I've thought over thoroughly. I've had to. I think a devoted young girl gives a man the illusion that Youth is still his. Very important, I suppose. Oh, very, very. Because without her, he might be inclined to go out in search of his youth. That's just as important to him as it is to any woman. But with a girl of his own, full of warmth for him, full of foolish, unquestioning, uncritical affection... None of which I've got. None. You have a good mind, a pretty face, a disciplined body that does what you tell it. You have everything it takes to make a lovely woman except the one essential an understanding heart. And without that, you might just as well be made of bronze. That's an awful thing to say to anyone. I mean, it's a pretty damning thing. And I, I, and, uh, I mean, it's a crazy thing to say because it starts off with, I think, a true statement. You know, that you know, cheating on someone is an attempt to regain your youth. You know, and then he can't take all that blame. So he basically says, you're the, like, you're the reason if you were not as much of like a jerk or a prig or a prude, whatever he calls her, like, like I wouldn't have done this. And and, like, what a, I mean, what a crazy thing. And he's not, no one holds him up to any sort of uh, like, you know, like, wait, Hey, hold on a second. Wait, can you take that back? What'd you say? Hold on. That uh, like, she takes it in. Like, you're right. You're right. Yes. It's terrible, but you're right. Yeah, nobody questions it. I mean, that is one of the things that's so upside down in this. I mean, this movie is basically like drinking is good. 
cheating on your fiance the day before the wedding is probably fine if he's not the right person. Right, if he's not the right person. I uh, mean, that's yeah. the only way to kind of find out, really. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, the the joke is that when kids uh, hear that their parents are getting divorced, the parents are like, it's not your fault. But this is the movie where they're like, no, it is. Yeah. This is right. not your fault. Yeah, I mean, and it's, but it's not even like it's <laughs> your fault because you made it difficult. It's like your fault because you're unlovable. Like if you were more lovable, like yeah. that's no, no, It's crazy. your fault because you don't love me enough. Yeah. If oh you loved God. me more, I wouldn't be sleeping with someone your age. What? Hold on, hold on. Oh boy, oh boy. This is a real, a real tough nut to crack here. I know. I mean, okay, this movie is kind of insane. I mean. All of the morals in this movie, you have to just not have them right well i mean this movie you can't i think look we're we're not going we can't unpack what was acceptable at the time because i think none of these movies especially comedies at this time hold up to any sort of scrutiny it is it is a wild world it's a wild world where you know people are arguing over pantsuits offset so we like we can't you know we can't get into it because i mean in my mind what you want to see is you want jimmy stewart and her to have sex like right a hundred percent, you know, and it's like, and, and it makes the end even better if they do, because it, it, he does grow up. I mean, that's what, that's what, uh, you know, she wants for him, his, his camera person, like she wants him to kind of grow up before they get together. Right? That would be, I mean, it makes the movie so much better. If they totally had sex the night before, it would have been perfect. You know, yeah, uh, and, I mean, that's the thing. Cause like when they kiss. I'm just all in on her and Jimmy Stewart. Yes. Like in a way where I almost don't want her to get back together with Cary Grant because the thing is, if this is a movie about Cary Grant being like, you've screwed up, he doesn't really do anything to change. No, like, Cary Grant. With him, he's kind of, I'll admit it, Cary Grant I think is not quite as compelling in this movie as he is in Bringing Up Baby. I totally agree with you. He is a person we haven't really talked about that much yet. And I think it's because it's kind of an unspectacular role for him. I've seen him be more charming. I've seen him be more funny. I've seen him play a better version of this character. And it seems to me like he's just a body. Like, like it was supposed to be Clark Gable. Uh, thankfully it wasn't because him and George Cukor did not get along during Gone with the Wind. But, um, and he had a commitment that didn't allow him to be there. And there's an element to that. Like, I just, I found him... I, I wanted him to be more charming. Yeah, he I want to do better. Yes, I just wanted him to kind of swoop in and be this undeniable force. And it's kind of written like that, but he, but he's not like he's not. Oh, he's not like aggressively charming. He's not. He's very good, but he's. I could see somebody else do this part way better. I could see him do this part way better, yes. which is why I think it's really frustrating because you have that moment where he's goofing around and playing with the candles like they're an organ yeah. on the table, or where he is right. being like a little bit more charged a little more funny a little more charismatic he's so dialed down that it's confusing which is odd because he picked the part he was given his choice of the two leads and he picked what he thought was the more showy role but i don't think it's a showy role i actually think it's weird i think the least showy role is kitteridge but he could play it in a really funny way because you just play in i think kitteridge actually is underplayed as well i i think that you could play up the uh, the buffoonery, the you know, the trying to fit into high society. I think he plays it almost very maudlin. That's why I think I'm connected to Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn because they're kind of electric in both their roles, and the other two are doing serviceable jobs. Exactly. I, you know. I mean, let's play that kiss because to me, when this kiss happens, mm -hmm. movie over. You know, like yeah. all right, we found our couple. Golly. 
I mean it. Tracy. Just a color, Mr. Carter. Let me tell you something, No, don't Tracy. all of a sudden I've got the shades. It can't be anything like love, can it? No, no, it mustn't be. It can't. Would it be inconvenient? Terribly. Anyway, I know it isn't. Oh, Mike, we're out of our minds. We're right into our hearts. Oh, that music. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Tracy, oh, you're so As if my insteps were melting away. What is it? Have I got feet of clay or something? Tracy. It's not part of the pool. It's just over the lawn and in the birch grove. It'll be lovely now. Tracy, you're tremendous. Put me in your pocket, Mike. Now, with all that being said, I have to say at the end, I really like that they got back together. I feel like he comes alive a little bit in the end. I, I think from the scene where he has uh, his moment with Kitteridge, like he starts, it's almost like he starts to wake up at the end. But again, his arc is really non-existent. If you were to draw anything here, I, like I don't see like what he learned. I don't see why he's changing. I it's sort of like no, no, we were never supposed to be apart. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we're supposed to be apart. Yeah, I mean, I do think he is so much more interesting at the end because you see him trying to protect Kittredge in ways. Yes. When he catches that there's the the jewelry that's been left on the table yeah. that will really prove that Kepburn had a night with Jimmy Stewart, which he thinks was boning. Right. You know, he tries to keep him that. He's like, you don't want to know this. And he makes this argument that maybe it's better if this guy just never knows what might have happened the night before his wedding. And that I kind of like this in a way, an argument that people get to have their secrets if they keep making the right choices once they've made their commitments. I agree. I mean, look, that's a it's a question of do you want to know if your spouse has cheated on you if if it doesn't really truly mean anything? And I think different people have different points of view, but you know, if I mean it's a it's a whole different podcast, but it's you know, I, I but I think it's <laughs> love it, advice yeah. with Pauline. <laughs> but I do think there is there's an element to that. I feel like if she was to get married to him. You know, I don't think that she'd be pining after Jimmy Stewart. Clearly, she wasn't pining after Jimmy Stewart. I mean, there are some tiny moments I think he really nails. Like, when Jimmy Stewart comes out with Catherine Hepburn in Mm -hmm. his arms, you see Cary Grant look down and notice her toes curling. Yeah. And he's been calling her this marble statue, and he looks at her body, and it's moving in ways that, like, have not been happening, according to him. And he, he picks up on it, and I love him for that. But, yeah, like, if he was an equal player, man, if he just brought the fire, if he wanted it and he was like, I'm your ex-husband. I'm charming as hell. If you played it more like Clark Gable, can you imagine? Well, but that's what I'm saying. Like it, we talked about it earlier in the show, this Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds, Emma Stone kind of relationship. I could see Ryan Reynolds doing that part uh, really well. Like you know, kind of like I think what I'm missing from uh, Cary Grant is stoking the fires. I don't find him to be enjoying stoking the fires. I think the parts that I enjoy is him being a good person and him interacting with everybody and and kind of telling everybody, you know, straight up what it what it is, you know, and and I think that that's a a great thing, but if he just stoked the fires a little bit more, I think it would it would be more fun to watch him kind of being the puppet master. Yeah, agreed, because that's exactly what he is. He's brought even Jimmy Stewart to this place. And at the end we see him literally be the puppet master when he's telling Catherine Hepburn what to say to the room full of the the audience for the wedding. like, And I was like, oh, yes. It's it's almost like the candle sequence on, he becomes the character that I wanted to see. Exactly. I know that we're taking some shots at Cary Grant, uh, but I will say to his credit, he demanded um, 
his salary to be $137,000 for his role, which is a giant amount for the time. However, he donated it all to the British War Relief Fund. So maybe his mind was on the all the soldiers overseas. It might be. And, you know, he actually said that part of where his mind was as well when he was shooting this film was just appreciating Jimmy Stewart. Mm. I mean, his exact quote was, Jimmy just simply mesmerized me on screen. Did he want to fuck him too? According to this book, uh, he said, <laughs> when I watched him act, I felt like a triangle player in the orchestra who keeps watching the conductor. And then when he finally gets the baton signal, he misses his triangle. Wow. So maybe that is it. Maybe he was just like, he Jimmy couldn't Stewart, keep up. Oh my God. Well, Jimmy Stewart is doing a lot. It's a, it's a fun performance. Uh, really, really good. Um, you know, there was something else interesting on set. This is a, a as far as Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart seemingly, had uh, not a hard time, but was very self-conscious uh, throughout the whole film. And, and we talked about how he felt bad about even, you know, being nominated for an Oscar. He didn't even want to go to the ceremony. But it, it even happened on set that they had to bring in Noel Coward to encourage Jimmy Stewart, who was nervous about performing the scene where he reads poetry to Tracy. So, like, Coward had to come in there and kind of offhandedly mention that he thought Jimmy Stewart was a fantastic performer. And this kind of snapped him out of his funk. And then he gave this phenomenal, you know, performance in the scene. But I, I think it's so funny that he's such an aw shucks guy to be so in his head. And seemingly, I, I mean, it plays into it a little bit, but it also seems like it seems like there was a method to his madness. I always feel like he's so like, oh, he just showed up, did his lines and was happy. And, you know, and that was it. And it seems like there was a lot more going on inside of him. Maybe it's it was true. that, that you know, just having that such a big giant schlong out there. He's just like, couldn't focus on anything I mean, else. Maybe the, maybe thinking about that big schlong, which I think you should be right now, helps explain this other story about the making of it, which that, you know, he had to do a bathing scene apparently in the script. Like right. he was supposed to get in his swimsuit. Right. And he refused to get in his swimsuit. And really? he said that the reason was his legs were too skinny. And he said that if I'm in this bathing suit, I know that it's not only just the end of my career, but the end of the film industry as we know it. Whoa. That's how self-conscious he was about his legs. But maybe... <laughs> It's just his dick was too big and he wasn't ready to put it out there. Maybe people were like, why are there three legs? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and why is one of them so much bigger than the other two? <laughs> uh, you know, who did jump in the water uh, was Catherine Hepburn, who performed her own uh, swimming pool dive stunt. That was her. Uh, apparently, uh, you know, she took great pride in that. Even razzing Jane Fonda a little bit on Golden Palm when Jane Fonda was afraid to do her dive. She said, I did it on Philadelphia Story. <laughs> uh, Way to go. Oh, wait. But one more thing about Jimmy Stewart, though, mm-hmm. while we're talking about him being insecure and his dick. So when he wins the Oscar for this, mm-hmm. he's a little bit embarrassed. He's like, I won the right. Oscar for maybe the easiest thing I've ever done. Right. What happens is his roommate at the time when he wins the Oscar is somebody we've seen in this podcast. It is Burgess Meredith from Rocky. Oh, wow. They're roommates at the time. And when he comes home with his Oscar, Burgess Meredith just says, where'd you get this? Ocean Pier Park? (laughs) And then Jimmy's like, okay, fine. So then he tells his dad, like, hey, guess what? I won an Oscar. And his dad's like, oh, is that a plaque? And he's like, sure, just send me the Oscar for safekeeping, kid. And so Jimmy's like, okay. And he mails his Oscar off to his dad's hardware store in Pennsylvania. And his dad just put it in a glass case in his hardware store. And And, that's it. And by the way, do you know the other part of that, too, is that forever that Oscar has a misspelling on it. They misspelled Philadelphia. Oh, that makes me feel so much better because I'm always misspelling Philadelphia. <laughs> well, it feels bad for Jimmy Stewart really got it on all sides in this movie. Um, <laughs> but well, he at least had his very own. <laughs> <laughs> he had his own Oscar in his pants. Yes. Um, so Amy, 
Amy, Amy, Amy. Uh, obviously, this movie is beloved. Um, what did uh, people at the time think about it? Did this bring Catherine Hepburn? Well, we know it brought Catherine Hepburn out of her box office poison role. But uh, what did people say? Everybody loved it, to be honest. Like, I went through and read a bunch of reviews, and I couldn't find anybody saying anything bad about it. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 58 critic reviews. Uh, That's crazy. I mean— Yeah, I found tiny quibbles. Like, I found one sentence here. Okay. One sentence there. The Jackson Sun said, it's not exactly what the censor would consider A-plus entertainment for the juvenile. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch said, talking about Kittredge and the actor John Howard, they said, perhaps John Howard's role was most neglected by the playwright who shows no sympathy for the self-made man at all. Fair point. Other than that, I just kind of pulled the rest of these clips because to me, it's just so interesting to hear them describe this character in a way that's hard for me to understand. Uh, The St. Louis uh, Post-Dispatch went on to say, Miss Hepburn takes a hundred hurdles without even touching them. You can hate her, enjoy her, wonder at her, and sympathize with the poor little kid all in the space of ten minutes sometimes. She really isn't bad when you get to know her, this Tracy Lord, and her purpose is really rather commendable. She just needs to be taught a thing or two, and she is taught. I'm like, okay, fine. And the Austin American statesman also kind of said what everybody was thinking. We have so long associated Miss Hepburn with this part that we find it difficult to say more than the obvious. She is Tracy Lord. Barry just escapes making Tracy a thoroughly, thoroughly disagreeable young lady. We don't know why it is that we like her from the start, despite her smugness and lack of warmth. Perhaps that is Miss Hepburn's triumph, is her skill. She will not let you dismiss Tracy as a little prig, but keeps you waiting for the time when she will let down her reserves and become lovable. It's just weird to me that people are like, this character comes out, says, Mom, Dad is cheating on you, I don't like him, and everyone's mad at her. Yeah. It's just so confusing to me. <laughs> but, say la vie. Uh, we've really uncovered a lot of things, but I guess the question that I really want to uncover is this. Is there a Simpsons? You know what? I feel so bad about the Maltese Falcon thing that I brought in three Simpsons. Oh, come on now. Don't <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't talk down to us. Now, the Simpsons that I brought in, none of them, I would say, are especially about Philadelphia Story. Yeah. They're all just about Catherine Hepburn. And I think this is our final Catherine Hepburn film on the list. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? Let's do Catherine Hepburn right, an actress I truly mm. love, sent her out with three clips of The Simpsons. Um, The very first one is from an episode called Homer Goes to College. Homer is applying for colleges. He's supposed to say what books he loves, and he has a surprising book on that list. Okay. Let's see. List your three favorite books and how they've influenced your life. His TV Guide a book? No. Son of Sniglet? No. Catherine Hepburn's Me? No. (laughs) Oh, I suck. It's a great book. Y'all should read it. Um, There's also a character who is inspired very much by Catherine Hepburn. It is in the episode Lisa's Pony. Now, lady, I'm buying a pony for my little girl and I don't care what it costs. Very good. That stunning creature over there is half a million dollars. Half a million dollars? He was sired by Seattle Slough and his mother won the Kentucky Derby. Wow. His likeness graces a stamp in Tanzania. I'll take it. Mr. Simpson, do you have half a million dollars? Uh, sure. Let me write you a check. Mr. Simpson, this check is dated January 1st, 2054. Is there a problem with that? Great. (gasps) And then the last one I included just because I think it most captures the spirit of how people felt about 
her before We are stretching, Amy. We are stretching, but we're getting in all of our our Catherine Hepburns because this is our last Catherine Hepburn. I mean, these are not these are not Philadelphia story clips Perhaps by any. Not Mr. Shear. All, right, all right, all right. Let's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is from an episode called "Catch Him If You Can." Got it. Grandpa Simpson is trying to pick up a woman on the beach. You're more boring than my husband, and he's dead. Well, I bet I smell better. At the moment, it's about even. I can't wait till we bury the last of you Hepburn types. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Amy, I mean, here we go. Uh, We've talked about this movie. It's the last one that we'll be doing of Catherine Hepburn. Uh, Do you believe that this belongs on the list of uh, the best movies of all time? You know, I love this movie and suddenly I find myself in the same position as bringing a baby that I want to kick the can a little further down the road. Mm Mm-hmm. And say, ugh, if we can only have one screwball black and white romantic comedy so I can share the wealth already and put more on the list, maybe my favorite one is It Happened One Night. Or maybe it's Sullivan's Wow, Travels. you're cha- Oh, know, Sullivan's Travels. How about My Lady list. Eve? That is also a great one. By the way, there is a lot of uh, Barbara Stanwyck old movies on Criterion Channel right now, mm. and they are terrific. And I just watched this one called Night Nurse this weekend. And if you really dug Barbara Stanwyck, if you dig remember that Preston Surge's movie, if you yes. remember her from Double Identity. I love it. Night Nurse. Night Nurse, by the way, has a young Clark Gable in it without a mustache being evil. How does he look without that mustache? He looks really weird. Doesn't look as handsome. Like he comes on and you're like, that can't possibly be him. And then halfway through, he gives a look and you're like, okay, it is him. But, but it's very weird. He needs the mustache. Well, and again, I want to just pump the movie that I like so much. Uh, Ball of Fire, directed in 1941 by Howard Hawks, where Barbara Stanwyck plays Sugarpuss O'Shea. Sugarpuss O'Shea. Um, all right. So, I mean, you know, if I was to decide between this movie and Bring a Baby, I kind of think I would go Bring a Baby. If you force me to pick right now. That's where I would go. I like this movie a lot, but I think what I find so unique about bringing up baby is that Catherine Hepburn is doing something out of her wheelhouse. We've already had her in her wheelhouse. Um, so we don't need to have two in her wheelhouse. I think it showed me a side of her that really made me, I mean, I've had some like real eye opening moments on the show, uh, for actors and directors, but like that one really kind of pulled me in. So right now, that's how I feel. But I, but again, if you said Harry Met Sally, like we talked about Harry Met Sally earlier, I mean, would I put this over Harry Met Sally? No, I think if I put Harry Met Sally over this. Yeah, I think I would too, which makes me cringe because I do really love it. It shouldn't movie. make you cringe. It's a, I mean, we got to make space. It's only a hundred. It's space. only a hundred. Right. We have Jimmy Stewart's big dick all over this list. Yeah, I mean, it's really all over this list. I mean, look, and we have to make a hundred and at least for me anyway, 30 of them need to be about war and and 15 about Vietnam. How many Jimmy, do you think there are more Jimmy Stewart movies on this list than there are inches in Jimmy Stewart's? You know what, Amy? That's a very interesting thought. It's uh, maybe a little bit investigative, but we should maybe turn to a trusted news source, which is what we'll be doing next week when we talk about (laughs) network. Um, We are going to get into a classic Sidney Lumet film, uh, you know, where people are mad as hell and they're not going to take it. And we're going to find out if we can take it as we talk about network. Um, I think it would be fun to hear that classic line done a little differently for next week's episode. Um, So, you know, maybe you're inspired, you know, uh, to say that line in a way that might be the way that Borat might say it. 
or it might be the way uh, a very southern man uh, or woman would say it. Like or I would Catherine say, Hepburn might say. Ooh, use your best way and your best judgment of saying I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. It just can't be newscastery. It has to be yeah. something different. Bonus points if I can guess who your impression is. All my impressions sound Russian, so I need to. I need somebody else's good impression. <laughs> All right, so give us a call at. 747-666-5824. And we will see you next week for Network. Make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.